It's the show the establishment warned you about. That's right, it's the Dr. Tommy Show. Welcome back. We're glad you're here. Thank you for joining us. Go to drtommy.com slash podcast, and you can see all the different podcasting options. Thank you to all the people who have subscribed, and thank you for listening and sharing with your friends. We appreciate it. And again, thank you for subscribing. It helps us know how many people are watching. Today, we've got a lot of stuff to go over, including uh, stuff on Joe Biden, his administration, and his eyes, and how they tell the story of what's going on in his brain. Uh, what else is in here? Climate change information. And then a couple of my favorite people, George Foreman and Clint Eastwood, had monumental career um, monumental career uh, what, achievements 50 years ago. So starting off with Peter Buttigieg. This is from Byron York. This is a Washington Examiner. He's got an article called The Peter Buttigieg Principle. And in it, he talks about how Pete Buttigieg, at the ripe age of 37, has already achieved his uh, his best, whatever he's going to be. And so, you know, the Peter Principle says that you'll be promoted up until your level of incompetency. And that is the end of your, that's when you'll, that's when you'll rise and rise again. So it says here, the Peter Buttigieg Principle. In the 1960s, there was a professor and business analyst named Lawrence J. Peter. He became famous for coming up with something called the Peter Principle. The informal way to describe it was this. In a business hierarchy, an employee does well and is promoted. Uh, he does well in his new higher level job and is promoted again. He does well in that position and is promoted yet again. Finally, he rises to a job that is beyond his abilities. He is no longer promoted and stays in that job. He does not do well. And that is the Peter Principle. And that is what's going on, according to Byron York, with Pete Buttigieg in his new capacity as a transportation secretary for the United States of America. And there's nothing that Peter Buttigieg has done to uh, make this not seem true. Uh, beginning with the supply chain crises of the, um, the, of the, um, oh, the, the lockdown. I mean, it was going to say the pandemic, but it wasn't the pandemic. It was the lockdown that caused it there. Dennis Prager is good about that. He makes sure that people uh, differentiate between the pandemic, which was a virus unleashed, as we know now, by the Chinese Communist Party upon the United States and other in the whole world, and the lockdown, which was the response to the Chinese coronavirus being unleashed upon the world, and that was through governments and basically through uh, uh, left-wing leaning governments who wanted to, for whatever reason, through their I still can't understand it entirely. What is the reason for wanting people locked down? But there certainly was a huge desire to lock down people. Anyway, Pete Buttigieg first came on the scene as a uh, mayor of a little town in uh, Indiana. And then he later was a vice presidential candidate and was one of the first out. Actually, I take that back. He wasn't one of the first out. I think the first out was either uh the chinese spy who loved me um eric swalwell or it was either him or kamala harris one of those two were the first out and then after that there were some people that stuck around and elizabeth warren was one of them and then pete Buttigieg was another one of them and then they went out right before the south carolina primary allowing the elderly joe biden to secure the nomination for the democrat party going up against um Bernie, crazy Bernie, who was literally crazy enough to do some of the things that he said. And that's why the Democrats didn't want him. Uh, crazy Bernie is actually crazy enough to try to uh, confiscate wealth. And the people who are for confiscating wealth in, in, uh, on public, in public, that is like, oh, uh, you know, think of your average uh, billionaire who is out there pandering to the left. Think Bill Gates is the best one. They're always talking about how they want to pay more taxes. They wish they could pay more taxes. You know, they're trying their best and they, they think everyone should pay more taxes. You know, Warren Buffett was was paying less taxes than a, than a secretary, I think, was a story. And he didn't think that was right. Anyway, all these guys, they want to pay more taxes. And they just can't figure out a way to do it. And so uh, Crazy Bernie was left in the primary. But the wiser people in the Democrat Party decided... Joe Biden was the guy and they picked Joe Biden, made everybody else drop out except crazy Bernie. And then it went down to the wire and Joe Biden actually won. 
Although they did, I think they probably stole some more of Bernie's voters. Actually, this time do they think they, last time they paid Bernie off when he ran against Hillary by giving him a house. Uh, that was a story. He got a house out of the deal and I'm not sure what deal he got with this, but anyway, he didn't make it. And then they put in Joe Biden. But anyway, Pete Buttigieg was one of the last ones, but Buttigieg has been on the scene now for two years now as the secretary of transportation. And aside from the fact that he is a, uh, it was a road scholar. He is a good looking guy. He, he is, he is a gay man. So that in the eyes of the Democrat party is par excellence as far as qualifications, because they're very much in favor of uh, skin color and sexual orientation or sexual organs now is the new one. And so he was a gay man. He is in the, he was a military guy. He's well-spoken, seemed well-educated, but unfortunately he has proven not to be up to, up to task. And he has proven that, um, uh, he's not going to be able to be president. It says here, ready at least until his recent troubles as his Buddha judge. Taking the transportation secretary job may have seemed like a good resume builder for Buttigieg, giving him some national experience, allowing him to prove his ability to run a large organization, in this case, the 58,622 employee Department of Transportation. But now the job has just done the opposite. It has shown Buttigieg to be unable to handle running a large organization when faced with the sort of crises that happen on an unfortunately regular basis. The Peter principle suggests that Peter Buttigieg, at just 41 years of age, has already risen to the level of incompetence. It's fair to say many national Democrats do not expect a rising star to peak so soon, and Buttigieg himself certainly did not. But moving up has its risk, and unfortunately for him and for the nation, Buttigieg has found a job he cannot do. So that was Byron York opining on the Peter Buttigieg principle. And the Peter Buttigieg principle, unfortunately, does not only exist in the Department of Transportation, Secretary of Transportation. Recently, there was an FAA administrator who was, uh, he's been nominated now to take the FAA uh, job. He's in charge of airplanes. And uh, he was questioned by uh, Senator Ted Budd from North Carolina. And this man's name is Philip Washington. And so he went in front of the committee and Ted Budd had some questions for him, and it went a little like this. Mr. Washington, can you quickly tell me uh, what airspace requires an ADSB transponder? Not sure I can answer that question right now. That's, that's okay. We'll just keep going. So um, that's, a, that's a pretty important part. So what are the six types of special use airspace that protect this national security that appear on FAA charts? Uh, sorry, Senator, I cannot answer that question. Okay, so what are the operational limitations of a pilot flying under basic med? Senator, I'm not a pilot, so... Uh, but I, obviously you'd ever see the F Federal Aviation Administration, so um, any, any idea what those uh, restrictions are under basic med, quickly? Uh, well, some of the restrictions, I think, would be high blood pressure. Uh, some of them would be... It's more like how many passengers per airplane, oh, how many pounds okay. in different categories, and uh, what ele what uh, altitude uh, you can fly under. So, and uh, and then uh, amount of knots. It's under 250 knots. So, okay. it's not having have anything to do with blood pressure. So, can you tell me what causes an aircraft to spin or to stall? Uh, again, Senator, I'm not a pilot. In uh, charge of airplanes. Okay. This guy uh, is going to be in going. charge of airplanes. What are the three aircraft certifications the FAA requires as part of the manufacturing process? Quickly, please. Three aircraft certifications. Uh, again, uh, what I would say to that is that one of my first priorities would be to fully implement that certification act uh, and report. You know the three types, uh, Mr. Washington? No. The, the three no. types? Okay. No. Yeah, that's type certificate, production certificate, and airworthiness certificate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's just keep going, see if we can um, um, get lucky here. There we go. So can you tell me what the minimum separation distance is for landing and departing airliners during the daytime? In charge of airplanes. I, I don't want to guess on that, Senator. Who would Are want to? Are you familiar to? with the difference between Part 107 and Part 44809 when it comes to unmanned aerial standards? Absolutely not. Unmanned aerial Unmanned, like drones. Are you familiar with yes, the difference? Yes. Okay. You know the difference between a drone those and two, an airplane? Part 44809 and Part 107. Do you know the difference there? 
No, I cannot uh, okay. fill that out Senator's for you. Time is yeah, thank you. I, you know, the uh, FAA can't afford to be led by someone who needs on-the-job training. And there you go. It doesn't uh, bode well for us when this guy is going to be in charge of airplanes. And the likelihood is he will be confirmed. And the likelihood, and I have not seen it yet, but my guess is, and if, you, if you're not watching, you're listening, the man he was questioning, Senator Ted Budd is a white man, and the man he is questioning is a black gentleman. And I assume that the leftist uh, drive-by media has said that Senator Ted Budd's line of questioning was racist. I assume that. I don't know that for sure, but knowing them like I know them, I'm pretty sure that that's probably what they said. So Senator Ted Budd uh, questioning Philip Washington, and he doesn't know hardly anything about airplanes, and he's going to be the Federal Aviation Administration uh, leader. And again... Peter Principle, uh, apparently Senator or Mr. Washington was in charge of an uh, airport previous to that. And I read one article where it says it didn't do a really good job at that either. But again, you never know when, when it's when it's time to fill up administration's uh, spots in a Democrat uh, administration, especially this one. They have gone out of their way to make sure to pick people not based upon their qualifications, but based upon superficialities such as skin color, the favorite one, uh, g- organs, genital organs, uh, or lack thereof, and then also uh, sexual orientation. Those are the most important things. And this is an outgrowth of what uh, Bill Clinton started in the 90s when he said he wants a cabinet that looks like America, and Joe Biden wants a cabinet that looks like America. And uh, has sex like America and then also uh, removes their genital organs potentially like America does or so he believes. But, you know, that's 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 two. And then there's you know, there's all kinds of others. There's there's the vice president herself, Kamala Harris. Uh, God bless her. She's uh, probably at least a less effective communicator than Joe Biden. And that's saying something. Joe Biden has been. uh well, it says here, this is from the New York Post. Joe Biden has uh, says, this is from Mark Moore. It's ridiculous, says Joe Biden, that Joe Biden will ever take a competency test. So apparently, uh, Joe Biden does not think that Joe Biden has changed at all, or he is as sharp as he used to be. And that's what she's telling us, and that's what she wants us to believe, I guess says First Lady Jill Biden on Sunday said it was, quote, ridiculous to consider GOP presidential hopeful Nikki Haley's call to mandate mental competency tests for politicians over 75, suggesting Joe Biden would never take one. Jill Biden said her, her and her said she and her husband, who at age 80 is the oldest commander in chief uh, in U.S. history, would be 82 at his inauguration if reelected, would, quote, never even discuss something like that. Ridiculous, Joe Biden said when she responded uh, in the State of the Union uh, show. So Joe Biden, as you know, is uh, he is probably well. How, how's it, how is it put it uh, gently? Probably not too far off from that time when he's going to have to have around the clock care. And if you think I'm just saying this to be, you know spiteful or whatever. Look, I'm I'm going to offer you some uh, some some evidence. And this is coming from me as someone who is not a neurologist. I'm not a neurologist and I don't play one on TV. I am a family doctor. Um but I do um I do see him and I see his eyes and what I can see when I look in his eyes is a man who is not there anymore. And as evidence if you're watching on Rumble, we'll we'll go to this video here. This is if you're listening, this is a video. It says Joe Biden in January of 2016 when he was in the last year of his vice presidency and then Joe Biden in November of 2022. And they're talking. It's him talking. One of them's at the World Economic Forum. One of them's at some type of press conference. And if you look at Joe Biden in 2016, which he was not a young man then. That was seven years ago. He was, he was in the 70s. Compared to now... It's a light years difference. Joe Biden in 2016 moved his eyes rapidly back and forth, was able to fix his gaze on one person and one thing and move his eyes back. 
and move his head rapidly. Now, in 2022, he stares stares at his notes for the most part. He doesn't move his eyes rapidly. When he does change his gaze, it's a very slow change. And this is something called uh, saccades that he is not able to do. And a saccade is where you move your eye quickly from one object to another. And I want to just go to this um, uh, video or audio, I'm sorry, of a neurologist describing exactly what happens when you have a problem with your brain in Alzheimer's and specifically, but dementia generally. So we can actually look and you can actually do a simple test with your loved ones to see how much function is there still in movements of the eyes. And what we look at are what are called saccades. Saccades. Saccades are actually a movement of the eyes to where we're looking to fixate to a point or where our eyes are actually going quickly to a point and holding and then coming back. So the way that we do it is we'll have a person stand in front of us and then we'll hold our thumbs up for them to look at as, as targets and then the instruction is look at the thumb that moves and then hold your eyes on that thumb and then look back at my nose and then look at the thumb that moves and then look back at my nose. And what you're looking for is the smoothness of that pursuit and you want them to be able to hold their gaze onto that thumb and without moving the head, okay? Because the frontal lobes will actually push them, but they should not push the whole head. Now look at Joe Biden. So Jacob, come up and let me just show everybody. Let me just pause this. So look at Joe Biden now and listen to what he just said. He said the frontal lobe will allow them to move their eyes without moving their whole head. Now, if you look at this video on the right, when he speaks and he moves his gaze, his whole head moves generally. In the 2016 video, his head moves, but that's just to change from location to location in the room. His eyes move independently of his head. If you look in November of 22, when he does move his eyes, generally his head moves with his eyes. There just happened. That is evidence, I believe, of a frontal lobe problem, a dementia problem, which has been ongoing. And that is what the uh, the media won't cover. That is also what is considered to be, I don't know, off, off, off limits, I guess. According to Jill Biden, it's ridiculous to even consider that. But I don't think it's ridiculous because this is not, uh, Joe Biden is not uh, just some random politician. Joe Biden is in charge, uh, nominally at least, of the United States government. He's the commander in chief. He is the one calling the shots, supposedly. And if he isn't calling the shots, then someone else is. And that's not how our government was set up. Our government did not say we have a monarch who is a figurehead and then we will have this team around him that is going to sup- supplement him and then allow him to just you know put his stamp on things and, and, and the, the, uh, the team around him is the one that's going to run the government. That's not how we do things here. You can do that. You can do that in other uh, places if you want. That's not how we do things here. We have a commander in chief. We have a solitary commander in chief, and Joe Biden is not up to the task. And that's not being mean. That is just honest to God truth. And like I said, if you look at this video here, and you can see the the way that his this is like I said, this is seven years, six years, roughly no seven years, roughly. Joe Biden's change is pronounced the change is pronounced from 2016 to 2022 and this is just one of the indicators that he is having some problems cognitively and this is another example of why we are having problems nationally because not because he's making bad decisions because i don't think he's making any decisions i think the people who are running joe biden are making bad decisions and we don't know who those people are we know who some of them are. We know Peter Buttigieg is one of them. He's making bad decisions. We know Kamala Harris is one of them. She's making bad decisions. But we don't have someone in office who is making decisions from the commander-in-chief's office the right way because we don't have one. We have a figurehead president. So we'll see. You know, Trump is the same age, roughly, as Joe Biden. Actually, he's younger. He's four years younger, I believe. But anyway, Trump is... Trump has been the same guy almost, he almost seems younger than he was in 2016. And that's not because I'm just trying to be a, you know, sycophant here. I'm just saying, truthfully, he doesn't appear any young, any older. And if if anything, he looks maybe even younger than he did in 2016. So age is not the only thing that Joe Biden has running against him.
It's his brain. Oh, what else we have here? Um, going to going to Donald Trump. So apparently, Jeb Bush has uh, weighed in on the um, presidential upcoming presidential primaries between the Republicans, and he is throwing his lot in with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, down here in the Free State. And so this overall seems like one of the things that um, Ron DeSantis is going to have to come to grips with is that the people who are looking to take him out from Trump's side are going to say that he is a neocon, he is an establishment guy, and this uh, Jeb Bush endorsement only leads more credence to that argument. I don't think he is. I think that Jeb Bush is an establishment guy. And I think Ron DeSantis is a, uh, is not an establishment guy. And the reason I say that is because of the way he's been, uh, governing Florida. He has not governed as an establishment candidate as, um, as Jeb Bush would have when he was, uh, or did when he was the uh, governor. And when I say that, I mean, just, just Jeb Bush would have not, uh, for instance, done some of the things with CRT, he would have not been as outspoken as uh, Ron DeSantis was for cultural things going on in the state, such as the Disney uh, trying to sully uh, Ron DeSantis by saying that the uh, quote unquote "don't say gay" bill, parental parental uh, notification, or the sorry, the parental rights bill that said we're not going to teach young school children about sex. And that was termed a don't say gay bill by people on the left, including Disney. Uh, Jeb Bush would have not weighed in on something like that. And so uh, anyway, that's why I say he's more of an establishment guy. But now he's, he's saying he's going to endorse Ron DeSantis, which is fine. I don't care if, if he does. It won't change my uh, opinion on him either way. But I do think that, like I said, this is one of the things that Ron DeSantis is going to have to come to terms with because Trump has been attacking or not Trump. I'm sorry. The people I've seen online have been attacking uh, DeSantis as an establishment guy, and he's a neocon, which is complete bullcrap. He is not. Um, but uh, there is some things about uh, Donald Trump, which I think when he has been uh, dealing with Ron DeSantis has leading me a little bit less likely to cheerlead for him. One of them is this out front attack on Ron DeSantis for no reason. Ron DeSantis has not declared for the presidency. Nikki Haley has. I think she's the only one officially. And that has not stopped Donald Trump from calling Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSanctimonious and all these other stupid things and trying to say that he was a groomer and grooming uh, high school girls when he was a teacher. So, but I was just reading this article. It's from conservativebrief.com. And at the bottom, they have this thing from... uh, uh, this is from this is from Donald Trump. It says, "This is Trump. He was speaking at uh, this is at the CPAC, I believe. Yeah, this is at CPAC. He said, we're not going to back people who want to destroy our great social security system. Even some in our own party, I wonder who that might be, want to raise the minimum age of social security to 70, 75, or even 80, said Trump apparently referring to his former uh, Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, who spoke at the gathering on Friday saying the next Republican president should work on entitlement reforms. So Mike Pompeo is basically uh, talking about reality. And the reality is is that the Social Security system is not great and Medicare is not great. And that's the problem that Trump has, is Trump, for all of his good qualities, is often too willing to use the government to do things. And this is based on the idea. This is based on the fact. I mean, that Trump at his heart is not a conservative and that's not being critical of him. He was not raised a conservative. Let's put it that way. Trump was raised and was for most of his adult life, a Democrat. I don't know if he was a liberal Democrat. We don't know that because he was, he was a civilian. We don't know what his, his leanings were, but he was a Democrat and he was pro-abortion. And, you know, at the beginning of his candidacy, he was talking about, we're going to use the government to do things with health care. We're going to make sure everyone has health care. 
Now, he didn't follow through with that. But at the same time, his inclination is to use the government to do things. And you saw that with Operation Warp Speed. And Operation Warp Speed was his idea to you know, stop the spread of the virus. It turned out to be, as we know, a big mistake because the vaccine, quote unquote, that they developed was not useful for the most part for stopping anything. It didn't stop anything. And there's questions about whether it did anything to reduce mortality. They claim it does has re- reduced mortality significantly or greatly, but we don't know that for sure. There's no way to ever know. But what we do know is that it wasn't, it wasn't, did not do what it was supposed to do is stop the spread. And it was used as a cudgel to force people to buckle under to the government. And it was also used as a way to uh, allow, allow the government to further restrict the ability of people to do things like keep their job, uh, travel, and do other things based upon their vaccination status. So overall, war- Operation Warp Speed was not something that I would be proud of if I was the president. And I think uh, Trump has also seen this as far as his polling is concerned because he no longer talks about it so much. But this thing, the idea that Social Security and Medicare are great systems is a complete falsehood. Social Security and Medicare are broken systems. Social Security and Medicare are Ponzi schemes. Social Security and Medicare use money from workers today to pay people who are getting Medicare today. And they don't even do that. It would be one thing if they did that. But what they do, what they, they don't even do that. Social Security and Medicare are, are taxes, essentially. It's a taxing program where you have removed from your paycheck, before you ever see it, taxes uh, to pay for these purported benefits that you're going to engage in in the future. So these young people who get their checks that has this, FICA and it has Medicare, those taxes are going to come out of their check. And supposedly those taxes are going to go into a little account somewhere in the government. And when they turn the ripe age of 65 or 68 or whatever the, whatever the, uh, the number is now, they're going to start getting checks from the government. It's all the money that they put in over this time, kind of like a piggy bank that the government keeps in Washington, DC with your name on it. And that money is going to pay for your retirement. And that money is going to pay for your medications and your doctor visits and all these uh, good things when you turn 65 or 68, whatever the number is. Actually, what happens is that money comes from you, goes to the government. It is immediately put into the general fund after they make a IOU to stick in the so-called trust fund. And the IOU is in the form of an untradeable security, meaning it has no market value. All it is is a accounting placeholder that says, we got some money that we were supposed to use for Social Security. Uh, we got $10,000. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to take that $10,000 in cash. I'm going to move it into the general fund. And then I'm going to write on here, I owe you $10,000. I'm going to put that in this trust fund. And then we're going to pretend like these IOUs that are in here are going to be paid back because they're going to be paid back by the government. And that's what we're going to call the trust fund. And then we're going to have meetings about the trust fund and the health of the trust fund and we're going to talk about, well, the trust funds, you know, it may run out soon or the trust fund looks good for now or, or we need to do this to shore up the trust fund. The trust fund is bullcrap. The trust fund is nothing other than, like I said, untradeable securities. They're IOUs. They are no different than if you gave your spouse $100 and your spouse then gave you back the $100 and you wrote the spouse a $100 IOU and said, okay, now we have $200. That's not how it works. You have $100. You just got someone who has an IOU from the same party, basically, from the same entity. And so that does not double your income. Anyway, so to say that the Social Security system is great is not true. Medicare system is not great. The only way to reform, quote unquote, Social Security and Medicare is to wind them down. And the way you do that is not by kicking people off of Medicare and Social Security. People who paid into the system, so to speak, should be allowed to be made whole. But there should be an allowance now for people who are paying into the system to get the hell out of the system. And there should be a way to make the Social Security and Medicare programs go away. And there's been various proposals to do this. Uh, One of them was 
uh, during George Bush's first term when they talked about Social Security privatization. He wanted to take a small portion of your Social Security contribution and put it into a private account. And, oh, that was demonized. Because you're playing with you're playing with people's retirements. They're going to risk all their money on the stock market. People are going to go broke. And then they said, well, the Social Security Trust Fund is there. And the Social Security Trust Fund we can trust in. And it's going to be there forever. The Social Security and Medicare are nothing more than line items on a budget. They are the same as missiles. They are the same as schools. They are the same as any other line item on a budget. Uh, food stamp program, whatever you want to, whatever you want to look at it, that's all Social Security and Medicare are, and they have no more certainty that they're going to be there when I retire or you retire than any of the other line items on there. So what we have to do is get rid of Social Security and Medicare slowly and allow people who are now paying in to get out of it. The other way to get out of it, too, and Walter Williams talked about this, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, is to pay people. And so let's say that you are due Social Security. Let's say you're going to retire in 10 years. And you don't want to wait till you're 80 because they told you you only have to wait till you're 68. And then Mike, Mike Pompeo gets elected president and Donald Trump's worst nightmare comes true. And uh, Mike Pompeo raises the age to 75. And then you say, well, shit, I don't want to wait till I'm 75. I was supposed to get one of 68. That's seven years. And I believe that's true. You shouldn't have to wait. Whatever they told you when you signed up should be the way it is. Otherwise, it's called a bait and switch. So whatever they told you should be the way it is, unless they offer you something better. And so let's say they say this. Okay, Social Security and Medicare are here. We don't know if they're going to make it. Trust fund as it is, whatever the trust fund is, is the, there's not going to be enough workers to pay for the retirees, essentially. And that's how a reflection of the, quote, trust fund. The number of IOUs generated from workers is not sufficient in play money to cover the amount of retirees. And that is pure demographics. That's pure mathematics. That is easy to predict. And that's going to happen soon. So what we'll say is this. Rather than gamble on the fact that you may not get your retirement or your medical care, I'm going to offer you this. We will give you some of the assets that we have that we own as the government in exchange for this, and that will make you whole. And then the people who are still on Social Security now and Medicare and who want to continue on, so be it. Once they've finished their uh, drawing of it, when they when they pass on, when they go to the you know their next life or heaven or hell or wherever they go into the ground, then that their account will be closed. Those people who have not paid in yet have the option, or who have not started drawing yet, have the option of taking whatever is due to them as a as a some type of payment from the government. Like I said, we have all these wasting assets. We have land out the wazoo, as Walter Williams uh, correctly um, identified. And let's say we'll we'll start giving you some land, and then. That will be a very small portion of the land that the government owns. And you could sell that land. You could sell it. You could get into a cooperative and you could lease it to an oil company or whatever you want to do. You could do that. And then the people who are now uh, retiring, they can be allowed to make more common sense, uh, more common sense um, plans for their retirement and their medical care, which will make a lot more sense than giving it to the government so that they can put it in this big basket of general funds and then write an IOU to this treasury or to this trust fund that doesn't exist and pretend like it's going to be there in the future. The reason that will never happen is because the government is the same reason the flat tax will never happen. People talk about a flat tax and abolishing the IRS. The reason none of that will happen is because the government wants these the government wants these programs. The government uses these programs to uh, to, to, to force people to do things. That's what the government does. Programs are there to allow the government to threaten you essentially to do certain things in order to get from that program. And so when I say that, you say, well, that, you know, explain that further. So, okay, let's take social security for instance. Social security is there. If, if you don't want me to cut social security, then you have to vote for me. And in order to vote for me, you have to support these policies that I have. And some of the policies I have, you may not like, but 
if you don't want to get your social security cut, you have to, you have to, you have to vote for me for these policies. So some of these policies may be, I'm going to expand government in this way. I'm going to make, um, let's say we're going to start being more like France. We're going to do uh, paid leave uh, vacation from the government. That's, that's one of the things that they'd like. Uh, we want uh, paid parental leave from the government for uh, after you've had a baby. That's something that they want. We want to expand childcare to make that free. You know, all these different, uh, all these different uh, socialist utopian ideas. You have to vote for those if you want to keep your social security. So they hold these programs out as a cudgel to make you do what they want you to do and to mold society in their in their way. And people who want to mold society in a socialist utopia are in favor of big government. So it goes hand in hand. So that's why it'll never happen because. Only people like myself who want a smaller government would vote for something that says, let's privatize Social Security. Social Security is a way to force people to do things. You can force people to do things by threatening to cut Social Security or by promising not to cut Social Security. So politicians can force people to do things that they want. Same thing with the IRS. You know, they took a lot. Oh, we could do a flat tax. You know, okay, yeah, we could do a flat tax, but what about the IRS? You know the IRS and the and the uh, tax codes is the best instrument that the that the politicians have to make you do things. I mean, you, you there's a lot of things you probably wouldn't do if the IRS didn't force you to do them. You know the the IRS uh, if if the, if the IRS was not around with all their different tax codes, some of the things that you're doing now you probably wouldn't do. So look at uh, electric cars for instance. The government wants you to buy electric cars. Okay, so they're going to give you money to buy an electric car. Now, a lot of these people that are buying electric cars wouldn't have bought those cars if they didn't have that uh, tax tax credit. But now that the government has said, well, we want you to buy electric cars. Here's a tax credit. You go and buy an electric car. Same thing with uh, if you look at it from another perspective, government wants you to have more children and be more dependent on government. So what do they do? This is not the IRS. This is a different program. This is the welfare programs. So government wants you to have multiple children out of wedlock. What do they do? Well, they pay you to have multiple children out of wedlock. So you get paid more if you're a single mother with multiple children. Every child that you have after one, you get more and more money. So the government incentivizes you to be a single mother with multiple children and to be dependent on the government because the government wants programs as big as possible. The government exists for itself. The government is an organism. Think of it as an organism that grows through the, the ingestion of tax dollars. And the bigger it gets, the more tax dollars it requires. And the more tax dollars it requires, the more it can control people by forcing them to do things, uh, by, uh, by taking their taxes, by, by make, making them live in small or making them live in small homes in big cities. That's all the things the government tries to do. And the tax code is, like I said, all the tax code is a giant social uh, social tool to make you do what they want you to do. And the whole idea of the having a personal taxes is insane anyway. Before 19, I think it was 1916, there was no, there was no uh, uh, income tax. The government taxed, uh, the government had excise taxes. The government had different ways to tax that were not income tax that paid for the government. But what happened after that? The progressive movement, the first progressive movement in America with Woodrow Wilson, followed, following up on what Teddy Roosevelt started. So Woodrow Wilson came in and they got the personal income tax and immediately government growth took off like a rocket ship. And you can look at graphs of this on the Internet. When the personal income tax took effect and the government started getting a taste of what it could get, the income, uh, sorry, the, the government program shot like a rocket. Government expenditure shot through the stratosphere like a rocket. Milton Friedman had a um, some statistics. I can't remember them offhand. But anyway, the, the, the percentage of government uh, expenditures as a percent of GDP in, I believe it was 1930 compared to now, was it was a, it was a big difference. And that's a direct result of the government getting a taste. Once the government gets a taste, it, it, can, it just wants more and more and more. And the government has been getting more and more and more. And if, if we let them, they will take more and more and more. What do they want now? Speaking of what the government wants you to do, guess what? Remember the whole thing about the uh, stoves? And now I say, oh, that was a conspiracy theory. 
This is from uh, Epic Times via Zero Hedge. Federal agency advances gas stove proposal from commissioner who floated ban. A U.S. agency has advanced a request for information on gas stove hazards after it was filed by a commissioner who has floated banning the stoves. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission announced on March 1st it is seeking information from the public on chronic chemical hazards from gas ranges. The commission released a draft public notice on the request for information, but has not released a final notice. The final one should be published by the Federal Register next week, a commission so, a spokesman told the Epoch Times. It says that the uh, the uh, any option is on the table. Products that can't be made safe can be banned. And this is from uh, Richard Trumpka Jr., who was a commission commission uh, one of the commissioners. So the uh, the commission is supporting so says, the commission is supporting proposed solutions to those hazards. So they said that they weren't coming for your gas stoves. They said this was all this was all blown out of proportion. But now. We know that they are. March 1st, they're seeking information. So what they're going to do now is they're going to say, well, look at gas stoves. Let's look at gas stoves. What have gas stoves done? And uh, they're going to come up with this, all of these potential hazards that have come by. And then they're going to come down with a ruling and they're going to say, now we must regulate gas stoves more closely. This is the thing. Government knows no bounds. There is nothing that the government, there's nothing in your life that the government if you give them the chance, would not regulate. I believe the government, given enough time, would regulate the amount of exercise that you do in a day because it is based on your health. And because if you do not do do enough exercise, you will become unhealthy. And if it came to that point, at that point, they're controlling all of your healthcare expenditures. There's no more private expenditure of healthcare. So you are now a ward to them and so it is in their interest that you be healthy. And it's just like 1984 when they have compulsory exercise. You remember that when um, when he's exercising from the telescreen. That is that is not beyond, uh, that is not outside the bounds of the people who are now in government currently. They would they would they would love that. I mean, think of the people who forced the lockdowns. You you don't think those people would like to force you to exercise? Or force you to eat certain things. I mean, look what Michelle Obama did with the school lunch program. She she would love to expand the school lunch program to your lunch program at home. Uh, I spoke last week about uh, how this green energy, the whole green movement is about money. The green movement on its on its face is about clean water, uh, clean air, beautiful streams, clear skies. But what it's really about is making a lot of cash. And it says this is from um, this is from Breitbart and James Pinkerton. It says the circle of green, big money, big Democrats, and climate change. It says. Remember the Beatles song Day Tripper? You know, the 1965 tune Forever in Rotation somewhere that includes the lyric. It took me so long to find out, and I found out. Well, that's the way I feel about green energy. I found out. Call me slow if you wish, but I'll explain. And he goes on to talk about how he didn't really understand why the Greens were so obsessed with climate. But then he came to understand that what green energy was about was not about climate. It was about money. And it's about making money for certain people. And the people that are making the money are financiers, a lot of them. And he goes on in this article to talk about how groups like BlackRock are backing companies that are ESG companies. BlackRock's this big, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what you call it, financial firm. They invest money. And they are using their clout through investments to force companies to bow to an ESG, um, ESG model. So they're, they are threatening companies that don't embrace ESG, environmental social governance, and rewarding companies that do. And what they found out is that some of these companies that they're backing have not done very well. So these ESG companies, although they the BlackRock said that the reason we're backing them is because they are green. And ipso facto, because they are green, they're going to do better because a green company is a healthier company. 
Well, it turns out that they, that's not always true, and that a lot of these um, a lot of these green companies are underperforming. But if you look at it, it's not necessarily about what the actual whole portfolio does. It's about what individual uh, what the individuals invested in these companies do. So you can have a group like BlackRock that makes money in, um, let's say that they invest money in a green company and a green company doesn't do as well as these other companies, but they have a lot of money invested in that company for what good that does do. If they invest their money into it and the company grows, then they make more money back on the back end. So if you look at, um, for instance, as a, as a, as a, um, as an example, look at uh, Al Gore. So this is, it says from the article, green capitalism, the fusion of greenism and cronyism is a proven model. Ask former vice president Al Gore. His net net worth has risen from 2 million in 2001 to 330 million today. Not bad. And do not think for a minute that he ever flies commercial. Al Gore isn't even a billionaire. Other greens aspire to a lot more green. And with the Biden, administra- Biden administration's help, they're getting it. So now how to keep the green circle of money flowing. And basically, you have to reelect uh, uh, Joe Biden to keep the green circle of money flowing. As we talked about last week, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act has $300 billion ready to push out the door to these companies. And Tom Cotton calls it a green energy slush fund, which is exactly what it is. Um, but again... These companies don't always do well, but the people who invest in them do well. So Solyndra, for instance, went out of business. Uh, The key entity here is they're talking about this uh, energy department's loan program is best known in the past for loaning money at concessionary rates to Solyndra, which went bust in 2011 and Fisker, which went bust in 2013. And it says, and by the way, Fisker was going to make cars in Delaware. And yes, Hunter Biden was nearby. Anyway, so Fisker and Solyndra went out of went out of business, so you're saying, well, those companies failed, and uh, well, that that doesn't make sense because why would you want to invest in a company that failed? Because some people made a lot of money even though they failed. If you give a company a billion dollars, and you spend a billion dollars, and then you go bankrupt, you still made a billion dollars, or you still pocketed a billion dollars. Now your company may have gone bankrupt, but you can take that billion dollars and go somewhere else. It says here. It says. A study conducted by the University of California, uh, Los Angeles, and New York University found that over the past five years, ESG funds underperformed the broader market, averaging 6.3% return compared to 8.9% return, respectively. Additionally, in comparison to other investment plans, ESG investors generally end up paying higher costs for worse performance. Gee, is it possible that BlackRock and the rest have been getting less returns for their investors by seeking out woke green investments? Messing with what? Their fiduciary, fiduciary duty? Such corporate wokeness is a puzzlement for sure, but it doesn't it doesn't work to disinvest from proven energy sources and invest instead in speculative sources that don't provide much power in a crunch. But that all begs the question, doesn't work for whom? Perhaps overall returns are lower, so the retired school teacher in Dubuque may see less money in her pension check, but perhaps at the same time, certain sectoral returns are higher. And so perhaps certain insiders are doing better, even as outsiders are doing worse. Similarly, maybe the overall health of the economy is not important to these green high financiers. What's more important to them is the value of their own portfolios. So these people like Trumpka and all these people who are floating these bans on gas, the way the left moves is, is so insidious. Like I said before, you would have to have a Ph.D., in uh, the leftist mind to understand all the different nuances of what they're trying to do. Uh, it's it's hard to understand. You have to unwrap it. And you have to unravel it because the thing that they always come at you with is the seductive, the seductive uh, argument. Invest in ESG companies. Why? Because ESG companies believe in saving the earth. They don't believe in discriminating against people based on their skin color. And they believe in clean water and clean air. That's a seductive argument. What they don't tell you is invest in uh, green energy company or ESG companies because I'm going to make a lot of money off this ESG company and I'm going to pocket it. And you're going to pay for it as a taxpayer. 
what else? So 1973 was 50 years ago, which is crazy to think about because I remember when I was a kid in 1993, let's pick that number was 20 years after 1973. And I remember hearing about the George Foreman uh, and Joe Frazier fight. And to me, the Joe George Foreman and Joe Frazier fight because I was born in 1978, it took place five years before me. To me, that fight took place the same distance of time prior to me then as it does now. So I feel like Joe Frazier, George Foreman fight took place in the past. And whether it was 20 years ago when I was a kid or 50 years ago now, it seems like it was still in the past. That's, that's what happens just based on your age. But either way, the George Foreman, Joe Frazier fight has turned 50 years old. George Foreman at the time was a gold medalist in 1968 Olympics. Joe Frazier was a gold medalist in 1964 Olympics. Both of them were heavyweight gold medalists. Joe Frazier at this point was at the peak of his career. He had defeated Muhammad Ali in 1971 in the fight of the century. And he had defeated the comebacking Muhammad Ali, who was stripped of his title for refusing to be inducted into the, uh, uh, to the army through the draft and was subsequently restored <coughs> and was on the comeback trail. He had fought Jerry Quarry and Oscar Bonavina before in 1970, before he got the fight against Joe Frazier. That fight was the first fight between two undefeated heavyweight champions. Two people who could claim legitimately to be the undefeated heavyweight champion. Muhammad Ali, because he had his title stripped, was the only reason he was not champion, was undefeated. He was 28 years old, I believe. And then Joe Frazier was, uh, I think he was maybe two years younger than Muhammad Ali. And he was the current heavyweight champion, having won the title after Muhammad Ali was forced into retirement or first forced into exile, they call it. And then won a series of tournaments and was named the new heavyweight champion. Anyway, so Joe Frazier had defeated Muhammad Ali. And in 1973, Joe Frazier and George Foreman hooked up for the, uh, it was called, uh, uh, what was it called? Oh, they called it the Sunshine Showdown. Anyway, it was in Kingston, Jamaica. And Joe Frazier was considered invincible at the time. Think of Mike Tyson if you're, you know, a younger person. Think of how Mike Tyson was thought of to be invincible. That's how Joe Joe Frazier was thought. George Foreman would later be considered invincible after he defeated Joe Frazier. But at the time, George Foreman was seen as green. He was seen as untested. He was seen as big and strong, but perhaps too bulky. And he was supposed to be an easy mark for Joe Frazier, as evidenced by the 3-1 to one, uh, odds that were placed. So entering the fight, both of these fighters were undefeated. Joe Frazier and George Foreman. Joe Frazier was 37 and 0. I'm sorry, George Foreman was 29 and sorry. <coughs> George Foreman was 37 and 0 and Joe Frazier was 29 and 0. Foreman had 34 knockouts among his 37 wins and Frazier had 25 knockouts among his 29 wins. And the fight was from the get-go a one-sided event. George Foreman bounced Joe Frazier all over the floor like a basketball. Six times total, three times in each round, Joe Frazier was knocked to the ground before Arthur McKinney waved the fight off and uh, declared George Foreman the winner by KO or TKO in the second round. And that began George Foreman's reign, which was later stopped by Muhammad Ali. But that was 50 years ago uh, in January of 22. So that's George Foreman's first title. He later won the title again in 1994 by knocking out... uh, Michael Moore in another three to one where he was a, again, a three to one underdog, but for different reasons, obviously he was 45 years old at the time. Another, um, cultural phenomenon that turned 50 is the uh, movie high plains drifter by Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood at the time was a young director. He had directed a few movies. He had directed a play Misty for me starring himself He'd also directed a movie called Breezy in which he did not star in. But this was his first take on the genre that he had been most famous for prior to now. And that was the Western. And he uh, did his own take on a Sergio Leone type character called The Stranger 
the High Plains Drifter. And, and it, he uh, plays a gunslinger that comes to town. And it's just kind of happened upon this town out of nowhere, out of the, out of the, uh, basically out of the sun. He just materialized almost and comes into this town and this town has been, uh, corrupt. It was, uh, it's a, it's a mining town that was on federal property and the former sheriff Marshall, who was in the town knew about this and was going to basically, uh, he was going to um, let the cat out of the bag that this mining town was making money off of government property. And so the townspeople murdered that marshal, whipped him to death in the street. And we find out later on that this uh, mysterious stranger has a little connection, some of a supernatural connection maybe to this uh, murdered marshal. And anyway, that was, this was, this was uh, Clint Eastwood's first Western, like I said. And it was, it's to me, of the Westerns that Clint Eastwood did directed and starred in there's this one. Um, there's outlaw Josie Wales, there's pale rider. And then there's unforgiven. And those are the four Westerns that he both starred and directed. And this was the first one. And this one is entirely different from the others, because like I said, this is almost like a Sergio Leone movie in terms of the, um, whimsical nature of it. And some, some parts they have a little sheriff, uh, they have, uh, you know, it's just certain parts of it are different than any of the others, like pale riders, um, basically a remake of Shane. And then, um, Josie Wells is entirely unto itself. And then unforgiven obviously is a masterpiece, but all four of them are great. Uh, Westerns high plains drifter to me is raw. It's, uh, not overly, um, there's not a lot of depth to it, but it is very entertaining. And that turned 50 as well. So if you have the, if you want to watch a good movie, watch High Plains Drifter. If you want to watch a good fight, watch uh, Foreman Frazier 1. Um, that's it for today. Thank you for joining us. Go to drtommy.com slash podcast to hear more of the Dr. Tommy Show. And thank you for subscribing and sharing with your friends and allowing our program to grow. Have a good weekend. Until next time, bye-bye.